said good morning. That doesn't seem appropriate now. Good afternoon. I'll just say that. It sounds very English. Which this building is built in the 1700s, 1792, so there's a lot of British influence at that time. So I think that all works. I think it's fine. So good evening. Good afternoon. I don't think I've ever, I'm not sure that I've ever been in a building this old, honestly. I'm trying to think. Um, and we were in Charleston over the summer, and we were down in the, the quarters, like right there on the, the wharf. And I, it was probably older than this, I think. But this is definitely one of the oldest buildings that I've ever been in. So what a blessing it's been. And this whole weekend has been a blessing. We had great services up in New York, like Brother Boyd mentioned, uh, this morning uh, at Mount Carmel. And it's just been good to be in the presence of God. And we prayed that God's presence would be with us. And what a joy that is. And, you know, I think about when, the, uh, when we were in New York at the fellowship meeting up there, uh, Brother Boyd had some folks talk about churches that had been constituted, some very old, like this is a very old church, and some that are not so old, like the um, South Hampton, right? Southampton, New Jersey, which is 20, 25 years old or so. But as we're talking about that history, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 25 years ago, 25 days ago, or, you know, 250 years ago. It's just, it's wonderful to see that connection with God's people in his history. And, you know, we were in the, the, the fellowship hall building before church started, and there were all these pictures on the wall, and I saw a picture of Brother Stephen, I think you were probably about 20 years old, and I was like, wow, just, you know, that history, that just that time of serving the Lord over and over, and just, you know, even through ups and downs, you know, even through times of trials and tribulations, just having that grace just to, to do the right thing, or the next thing, you know, maybe not even the thing that you think is the grand, important, strategic thing, but it's just the simple, faithful next step and it's what a blessing it is to have that history of people doing that mothers raising children you know fathers working hard and and churches coming together families coming together to support one another the apostle paul talks about how we ought to weep with those that are weeping and that's a real that that's really connecting with our our family at, on a different level than, than people outside the church can really understand i mean sure people get sad but when but when you say that there is a this connection that can't be pulled asunder, I mean you can't pull it apart because there's such a deep connection with the people of God that if they're sad, you're sad. If they're struggling, you're struggling. If they're happy, you're happy. You know, if if they beat you in a marathon, you're glad for them, right? <laughs> and so uh, that's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's just what a blessing that is. Up in New York, you know, we were, when we were talking about all these churches, I got to thinking about how I had read once a long time ago and that when you, you know, read stories in the Bible, like these are your stories. These are your people. You know, this is God's people. From the very beginning of Genesis all the way through the very last chapter of Revelation, what we see is God's plan for his people. And we see God calling his people. And we see God speaking to his people. And so today as we read these stories, as we read the narratives of Scripture, they're our stories. These are our people. And, this is, and, and so what we, what we do is we put ourselves, we need to put ourselves in these stories and see ourselves in Scripture. And so that's always been something that, since I read that, that I've tried to do. You know, I think about like we sang a hymn that was written by Fanny Crosby. And you all know, it's widely known, the story... Of Fanny Crosby, how she was blind, 
At a very young age, as, as an infant, she lived her life in the service of the Lord. Someone asked her once, if you could have your eyesight back, would you do it? And she said, no, which, is, which sounds strange. Like, you know, if you could, you wouldn't have your eyesight. And she said, no, because the first thing that I want to see through these eyes is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll, I will see him. That's the first thing that my eyes will behold. And so just put yourself in that frame of reverence and love toward our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, there's been a couple of themes on my mind this weekend, you know, just trying to slow down and meditate on God's Word, really engage with your loved ones and with people that you just sometimes talk to but maybe don't really see, or maybe talk to but don't really listen to. And so for her, just the fact that, yeah, I could see, but think about what that would open up in my life, you know, all the other possibilities, beautiful things, but at the same time, perhaps things that would take my focus off of Jesus Christ. What a, what a, what a testimony, right? What a testimony. She also said once that, you know, the way that we ought to live our lives as God's children is that we try to find as much beauty and joy in every interaction that we have so that it becomes a precious memory. And so like as we're sitting in this church today, we ought to be thinking, how can I worship God in such a way that it becomes a precious memory? Not just that I came today on this Sunday, but years from now, I remember this time and these people. And I remember the word that we read together. And I remember how we worshiped God together. That's why I think it's important for us to connect with those stalwarts of the faith and with our people. Because you hear those stories. And when you slow down, you really get a chance to see that. I want to look at a, a few more examples, just real quick and before Brother Andrew comes up. I want to look at... Five examples that I've thought of, and, and they don't all connect really well, but just I want to, with that theme of really seeing yourself in these narratives, I want to look at a few verses. So if you would, let's start off in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is the story of Peter. It's the story of the beginning of Peter becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And we see in Luke chapter 5, We'll start off reading in verse 1. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gesenaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. So the fishermen were done for the day. They had fished all that they were going to fish, and they were cleaning up and getting ready to, um, to end their, their work. And it says in verse 3, And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and he prayed... Him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering, saying, said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were, in other, in the, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came, and they filled both of the ships so that they began to sink. And look at verse 8. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
And so just think about that scene just for a moment. Here you have Peter. Peter is a very accomplished, skilled, I'd say entrepreneur. He's got a business here. He runs a successful business. I think Peter would be the one that others would look to. So he had some authority. He had some skill and ability to get things done in a way that others look to for for advice. And so Peter is there sort of a man of industry, right? A successful man. And Jesus comes to him and he says, I want you to go out a little bit further. We don't hear exactly in this text what Jesus was teaching, but we know it was impactful. We know that that Peter calls him master soon afterwards, so it had a dramatic impact on Peter. By the way, any time you open the word and you you have an encounter with Christ, it's going to be impactful. Anytime. And so Peter has this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus tells him, go on out a little further and drop your net down. And Peter says, you know what, I kind of of know what's going on here. Like, I kind of know how to do this job. I've been doing it a long time. And he says, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, if if I were to do it, it's not going to render any real fruit. Like, it's not going to, it's not going to, I'm not going to get any more than I already have out of this. So maybe he's in his mind thinking of the cost-benefit analysis you know, it's going to cost me a lot to row out there. I'm already tired. I'd like to go home and eat, maybe just go home and relax. But I'll do it, and I'll do what you say. Because he says in verse 5, Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And so how can you put yourself in Peter's place here and say, you know, there's, there's times when I feel like I have the industry of my life, right, my vocation, my home, my life. I feel like I have things in order. Like I know exactly when it's time to quit and when it's time to start again. I know I've done things long enough. I've run my business long enough for my family. that I, Or maybe even just I've been to church long enough that I kind of know the ropes. Like I know the doctrines of grace. I can tell you, you know, every point of doctrine that we hold dear is old school Baptists. And, you know, I kind of got it. I got it down. I'm sort of maybe on autopilot. And so Peter kind of has this interaction with Christ where he says, you know, I know this job. I've done this a long time. We've been doing this all night. Nothing's happened. I can maybe tell you about the way the the water flows come in and maybe where the fish are schooling up, but I don't think they're here right now. But he says, but nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And he says, but even though I kind of feel like I know the way to do it, I'm going to turn to your word and follow you. And so when they had done this, Peter was surprised because in following Christ... You're always going to get an outcome that's even better than you even possibly expected. That's right. You know, if you ask God for something, you may not get that specifically, but you are going to get something far better. You are going to get blessed, and you are going to be taken care of, and God's provisions are going to land on you in a way that you can't possibly even fathom. And that's exactly what happens to Peter here. And it happened... It's such a high degree that he had to go out and tell other people, right? He had to go out and say, not just, hey, I put my nets down out here and I caught a lot of fish. It was, hey, come help me. Like, come see this. This is amazing. If you don't come help me, we're going to lose it all because I'm not going to be able to handle it. And so they all came to help, right? All, you know, so, so Peter didn't just withhold this blessing. He went out and shared it. And in verse 8 is what really I think we should land on and really just take the time to think about in our own hearts. And so when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Just think about times in your life 
When you've been led in, in, in a direction of blessing and of provision, and you've been taken care of, and maybe you didn't even realize it. Now, how many times do we miss an opportunity just to fall down at the knees of Jesus? I mean, think about how humbling that would be. You can imagine that Peter's a big guy, maybe a big strong man. I don't think that they had a lot of modern technology then that these fishermen have. And I don't think fishing is very easy today either. Um, but, I mean, you think of the ropes and, and just the, the work that's involved and, and the different muscle groups that are always being worked out. This is a big, burly, manly man. And so this act that we see with Peter is not a, a weakness. This is not something that says, well, he's maybe a little bit emotional, right? Maybe he's just a, you know, maybe he's a little bit sentimental. No, this is the appropriate response in the presence of Christ, And this is the appropriate response for a child, for a mother, for the burliest outdoor working man in his, you know, coveralls, to the man working in an office behind a computer, to the teacher, to the lawyer, to whoever. This is the appropriate response that we should have to the goodness of Christ. And so he falls down and he grabs his knees and he falls at his knees and he says, depart from me. You are too glorious to even be in my presence. I shouldn't even be allowed to get the blessings that you are bestowing upon me. And honestly, I don't think it was just about the fish. I mean, I think that it was about the glory of Christ and the power of Christ and the grace and the mercy of Christ. And I think in that moment, Peter has taken in these teachings that he just heard. He's taken in the fact that Christ is just there with this authority over everything Right, with the fish in the sea even like obeying his command. And I think it was just all too much. And I pray that we could be like Peter as often as we possibly could. That as we go through our day, that we just maybe have to pull over on the side of the road and wipe the tears away from our eyes and just fall at Christ's knees and worship him. Let's look at another example also in Luke, really quickly. If you turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 23. You know, after Christ was crucified, well, while he was on, while he was on the cross, um, he was put on the cross between two other men, right? these two malefactors. And I don't think that it's coincidence that we see this repentant, penitent thief. And then we see this other malefactor, this other thief, this other criminal doomed to die, condemned to doom to die, condemned to die. And one of them utterly mocks Christ. And the other one has a heart that's broken because of his sin. And I think that's not coincidental. I think that we see that in ourselves. We see, like Paul says in Romans, Romans chapter 7, especially there's this nature that we have, right? We have this flesh and we have this spirit. And as a child of God, we're always battling those things. Those, those are always at war within ourselves. And so if we were to see ourselves in these two malefactors, let's look at how this scene unfolds. If you look at Luke chapter 23, verse 39, we see that one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So how could we see ourselves in that? Do we often just maybe not say that 
to that extent, that blatantly and that openly, but do we ever just really feel entitled, maybe, to God's glory or to God's grace? Do we ever just take it for granted? Do we ever maybe just think, you know, I'm a good person. Why do these things happen to me? Or if I go to church, everything will be fine. You know, I'll have everything buttoned up. I'll do the right things, and it's okay. And then when things don't go our way, we don't blame ourselves. We don't look to ourselves to say, well, I'm the reason that things aren't going so well. I had a coworker in my office who, um, before he came to work with us, he had another job that he was very high up in this company, and um, and he got forced out of the company. I don't know if he was fired or just maybe was asked to leave. Or, but the whole time he was at our company, he kept talking to me about all of these problems. And you know, in every story, it doesn't matter. We didn't matter if it was his relationships it, it, you know, with you know, family members or if it was his job. Or if it was you know, things going on at our office, you know, everybody was always doing bad things to him and causing him a lot of problems. And so finally I just said, you know, the only common denominator in all of these stories is you. Like, I mean, you're at different companies, you're at different relationships, you're, but it's all you. And, you know, and I felt like, you know, it's me too. I mean, it's not just you. We all do this. But that's what this thief does. You know, he never really says, I'm here because I deserve it. I'm here because I've, I've done things that have caused me to run foul of justice, right, of, of, of righteousness and truth. And so these are, the, these are the just rewards for my action. He never comes to that conclusion. And so, but I think on a small level, we all are guilty of this too, and we have to really fight this. I mean, think about relationships where you've had, where you just wanted to get your way. You just needed your way. Or times when you were dealing with certain people in your life and they just rubbed you the wrong way and you just felt like you were owed something out of that relationship. You deserved an apology. You deserved to be treated better. And it may be the case that you did, but the fact that you're focusing on it means that you're focusing on it like this malefactor next to Jesus. You're not focusing on the bigger picture. You're not focusing on Christ where all of those things and all of that justice could melt away because that's your own self-righteous justice which is what God has never called us to pursue. And so we see this malefactor, and he railed against Christ and mocked him and never came to this place where he praised him and and adored him and fell at his knees like Peter did. But look at verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, "Dost Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. So think about the difference in his heart there. When he says, Jesus, you didn't deserve this, I did. Like You didn't deserve this condemnation, I deserved it. You didn't do anything wrong. I did. And he doesn't still go to Jesus and say, because I have you know, lived my life and as, as a good follower of you, because I said a prayer when I was eight or got baptized when I was you know, at a young age and I've lived my life in the church, he doesn't care about any of that because none of that can even apply to him. All he is clinging to is the mercy of Jesus Christ. And all he's clinging to is saying, Jesus, please remember me. 
And I love it how here he calls him Lord. I mean, he says, you are my Lord. There's this immediate change in his life where he could see that the priorities in his life have been changed like that. His understanding of who is important, of who should be first, of what order his steps should be ordered in, it's changed because of his understanding that Jesus is his Lord. And he just prays for him to be remembered. And look at the response in verse 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today they shall... Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How glorious is that? To put yourself in that place. Just to to try to feel like, you know, that same love, that same mercy, that same blood. You know, in Hebrews we talk about that this blood that was shed here was the absolute perfect sacrifice for you. It was the only sacrifice that would atone for your sins. It was the only sacrifice that would allow me and Andrew and Stephen and and all of us to stand in the presence of a holy God. And here this, this, this thief on the cross, this malefactor experiences that and he understands that and how beautiful that is. A couple other examples, we, we won't turn to all of these, but you know, I was thinking about in 2 Kings chapter 6 when the armies of the Syrian kingdom were advancing against Elisha and his servant. And you can imagine that there was terror in their hearts, or at least the servant openly you know, it, it expresses how he is so burdened about this. But we see in the very first chapter of this, this is in the sons, this is 2 Kings Chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. And they're, they're I think that might be the wrong. No, that's right. So anyway, they're, they're, they've got this army of Syria that's coming to attack them. And there's been conflicts between Syria and Israel, and we're going to see the the judgment of God fall upon the nation of Israel because of their sins. And Elisha comes to intervene on their behalf. And if you look at verse 16, we'll we'll look at 15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold... And host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. So this is, well, I woke up this morning and I was at Brother Stevens. And I woke up and I saw this beautiful Chesapeake Bay all around you know, where we were staying, which was glorious. But imagine if you were in the place of this servant and when you woke up, you saw horses and chariots and the most powerful army in the world surrounding you. And getting ready to snuff out the light of your kingdom. And getting ready to kill every man, woman, and child in, in, in that place. And that's what he saw here in verse 15. He says, Behold, a host can pass the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered and he said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more powerful, and they're more than they that be with them. And we should put ourselves in that place and we should understand that when we feel like the trials of life are coming upon us and there's no hope and there's things that just seem overwhelming, that God is with us. 
That Jesus Christ is with us and more powerful than any destructive force in this world. Look at what happened. Verse 17, Elisha prayed. Again, that's the greatest, that's the best thing you can do in that situation. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around about Elisha. What I love about that is when you put yourself in that place, what you have to see is you don't even have to pray that something would happen that's not already happening. Right? right? When, When he's praying this, what Elisha's saying is there's already deliverance. We've already had, we already have the deliverance. What I'm praying is that our eyes would be open to see it. And so that's what we need to do. We need to pray that we can already, that we can see what's already been given to us through the righteous blood of Christ. In every situation of life. And so... I think it's important for us, like like I've said several times this weekend, to just slow down and just meditate on these things. You know, I love how, and just one more quick example, something that we can just, something so easy to meditate on. You guys all know the story in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. And as you read that story, what you always, you know, there's always these grand themes that leap out to you in this story. There's themes about you know the, the, the son being so rude and, and being so just basically telling his father, I don't care if you die, I want what's mine. You've got this father who has such a love for his son, and you see the love of God like manifesting himself under this, this prodigal son, this prodigious waster, right? This person that can't even take care of what God has given him. I mean, those are great big themes, but something that's stuck out to me as, as you read this. You've got this, this, this prodigal son, and he has basically been lowered to, to the job of feeding the pigs for this rich man. And so over here you have the blessings that come from following after God and being in a family that loves the Lord and everything that comes from that to being this waster, someone who doesn't love the Lord, someone who doesn't care about his family, to someone who has nothing and winds up in filth. And winds up in, you know, feeding the swine. And he says in verse 16, And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. He had nothing. He was at the very bottom. But I love just the very next part of verse 17. In fact, I have it underlined and highlighted and exclamation points. And it says, This prodigal son, when he was in that state... When he came to the end of his rope and he had nothing, verse 17 says, and when he came to himself. How glorious is that? And you put yourself in the place of this prodigal son and just pray that God would allow you to come to yourself. You know, if you're a child of God, foreordained, you know, predestined from the foundations of the world, It's not like you to go out and do the things that this prodigal son did. It isn't like you to dwell on your own needs or your own desires or your own self-righteousness. It isn't like you to go out and do the things that cause grief to the Holy Spirit or that runs counter to the Word of God. 
And so if you put yourself in that place and just pray that I would come to myself. And that's a prayer you can pray every day. Lord, when I get up and I interact with my wife today, help me to come to myself. Help me to come to the place where I am knowing that I'm a child of God, would interact with her the way that you would have me interact with her. Or help me, Lord, when I get up and I, and, I, you know, and I get on the train today to go into work, Lord, that you would help me to come to myself at an early, at a, very early this morning, that all day long that I would I'd be running to you, and every interaction that I have would be the just manifestation of me expressing the goodness of Christ and the gospel of Jesus. And so that's my prayer that we would do that this week, just... Focus on how we can put ourselves in these stories that we read in the Bible and pray that God would let us come to ourselves. Amen. Amen. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of good to be with you all here at Columbia again. Um, that last example that Brother James mentioned about the prodigal son coming to himself made me think of the last verse of Romans chapter 7 where there is this dichotomy spelled out between the flesh and the spirit. Elsewhere, I think Galatians, Paul describes it as the flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit lusting against the flesh. People have described this as the Christian warfare and it's not just talking about the warfare out there against the world and the devil, but it's talking about the warfare in here between um, you know, my base nature and my redeemed and converted nature. But at the end of that, I love at the end of Romans chapter 7, for the longest time I'd read that passage and I would say, well, it looks like the ping pong ball keeps going back and forth across the net. You know, today I'm, uh, I'm doing, doing well and over here tomorrow I'm not doing so well. I, I, I can remember, let me just interrupt myself. I can remember sitting in here over there, over there, over there, so, so many different services through the years as I was a younger man and, um, and hearing some wonderful, wonderful messages come out of this pulpit, and several of them were from Elder Sonny Piles. So I'm going to share a Sonny Piles one with you here tonight, tonight this afternoon, in relation to Romans chapter 7. You, you, there's a careful balance to be drawn on this matter of describing the, the nature of the child of God after the new birth. Because there is a change. We don't believe in the hollow log idea of an unchanged person that the Spirit of God sort of takes up residence inside, but the outside, the rest of me, is completely unaffected. But we also don't believe in that, what they call the whole man doctrine, where you kind of are transformed instantaneously from being a totally wretched person to a person who never makes any mistakes or does anything wrong. At least that's not my experience. Brother Stephen, maybe, but not anybody else I've met. But, um, but there is, there is a, there's something of the, the old flesh, the old nature that remains within us, which Paul vividly describes here in his own personal experience in Romans 7. But there's also clearly a new principle within, a new self, a new identity. 
And in this day when our society is obsessed with identity politics, you've got to fit in some slice of some fraction of some particular demographic, and then you can identify with all that group of people and hate everybody else or be hated by everybody else. That is nothing but the work of the devil to try to sow strife and discord throughout our nation and culture. Friends, you have more in common as a believer in Jesus Christ with somebody who's not your age, somebody who's not in your socioeconomic class, somebody who's not your race or color, but has a love of Jesus Christ in their heart. You've got more in common with them than you could possibly imagine. You are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we just need to be breaking down those walls and those barriers and finding that unity and that identity that's in Christ. But sometimes, as I say, people, people get too metaphysical in their understandings of the old and the new nature, the old man and the new man, to the point where Brother Sonny Piles gave the illustration of a man who came home and it took him a little too long to get home from work that day. And his wife was waiting for him when he got home and she said, well, what have you been up to? It sure took you long enough to get here. She said, in fact, I heard from the neighbor, you've been carousing around down in the town. And he kind of sheepishly and with an odor on his breath, he said, well, <laughs> honey, that wasn't really me. That was my old man. And she, she reached under the counter and got a cast iron skillet and said, what? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, honey. That was the old woman. <laughs> now, truth be told, there, there, there was, you, you, can't, you can't absolve your responsibility that easily. You've got to own it. That's you. That's me. Paul says right here, this old man he's talking about, he said, that's me. But he also says, the new man, the, the principle instilled in me by the grace of, of God through the Holy Spirit, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's me too. And I love when he gets down to the end of this chapter of this conflict. He says in verse 22, Romans 7, 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Sounds almost hopeless, doesn't it? Like an, an everlasting conflict. But then the last verse says, I thank Amen. God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I, say it with me, myself, serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he, read, he identified, but he knew they were both him, the old man and the new man. It's both Andrew Huffman. But when I get down to the end, when I get to my deepest core self, the me that's really me, let's put it this way, the me that's going to last forever is I myself. When he came to himself, to that innermost self that is the work of the Holy Spirit of God, what a blessed, blessed reality that is. All right, <clears throat> I want to uh, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and... Um, Look at another uh, principle here that Paul lays out. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, really this whole last half of this chapter relates to this theme, but I just want to grab the last few verses of the chapter. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In the context here, he's talking about the importance of the work of preaching the gospel. And he says, isn't it interesting that God would choose something that is, is outwardly weak and foolish as preaching the gospel. I mean, it comes, you come down to it, it's just talking. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no props. There's no, there's no uh, you know, hypnosis. There's no, there's no, there shouldn't be any manipulation. There's no, there's nobody standing up here with a machine gun telling you to agree with what I say. It's just talking. Preaching is just talking. But when it's empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, there's something that you can't see, but you can experience if you have as Brother Sonny Paz also used to say, if you have the receiving set, that 
the radio antenna inside that picks up that frequency of the Spirit of God being uh, delivering that message with power and blessing it with the unction of the Holy Spirit, then you pick that signal up and it means something to you. And so what seems outwardly weak and foolish, he said, God's, God delights to use to, to, to demonstrate his superiority to the might of the world. You can, you can show that you're a lot stronger than your enemy by going over and taking more armies and better guns and better tactics and crushing him, and his, his might against your might. But what if he had all of his, his armies and munitions mustered against you and you went over there, I don't know, riding on a little pink rainbow pony and, um, and you know, just did this and all of them fell down. <laughs> Wouldn't that be even more impressive? <laughs> I mean, it would be. And so, so God is saying he takes the, the things that look so weak, but it's that that he uses to confound the strength and the wisdom of the world. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. And why does he do it this way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Because if you're part of the army, you know, if you feel like, hey, you know, me and God, we make a pretty good team. If you sort of feel like, you know, God can't get it done without you and if he's sure lucky to have you as his sidekick, well, you're, you're accruing to yourself. You're claiming to yourself some of God's glory. And God's jealous. He's not going to give his glory to another. He loves his children too much to let us get puffed up that way and self-deceived that way. And so he said, I'm going to do it with, with the weakest things so that they themselves know, if they're thinking right about it, they know they can't claim any credit for what is happening by the Spirit of God. When the angel of God comes in and destroys 186,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, and uh, the Israelites wake up and they've won the battle without fighting, they can't say, wow, we're such good soldiers. <laughs> they have to say, wow, we serve a great God. And so he says, the purpose in the way God does these things is that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him... It's his doing. Are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So let's glory in the Lord a little bit this afternoon. Let's glory in the Lord. Let's go to 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to get a verse from here, and then we're going to get to our text. We're going to glory in the Lord by thinking about how small we are and how big God is. Amen. And it's an exciting thing to contemplate. We've got a sister back home that... I know when she gets excited that the Spirit's in the matter because she, she loves to hear the Word of God, the, the name of God exalted. She loves to hear the Word of God preached. And, and every so often, every few months, she'll come up to me and say, Brother Andrew, I love to hear about how small I am and about how big God is. She did, that's just a recurring theme. She wants to be reminded of that on a regular basis. And if you don't know you need that, you need it even worse. So we're going to 1 Samuel chapter 15 where, Sam, where Samuel the prophet is talking to Saul the king. And Saul is riding high. Things have been going well for Saul. He's the first king of Israel. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. You can pick him out of a crowd real easy. He's apparently a pretty good-looking fellow. So he's got the girls falling all over him. He's got all the money he needs. He's got armies to do his bidding. He, he's, he's at a good point in his career. And Samuel, however, the representative of the messenger of God, is the one who gives him the orders. And if you know anything about kings, you know most of them don't like to take orders. 
So here is a king who's supposed to be answerable to a greater king, but this king is instead getting in his mind, you know what, I think it might, might be time for me to start doing things my way. I'll listen to Samuel. I mean, I'll give Samuel an audience. I'll pay attention to it, but then I'm going to go off and do what I want to do. And that's exactly what he does in his 15th chapter of 1 Samuel. He's commanded by God to go out against Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, and ass. Wipe out the Amalekites. And that may sound awfully mean to you, but if you knew anything about the Amalekites or these other uh, Canaanite tribes over there, you'd realize it was a blessing to the entire earth for these people to be wiped out as quickly as possible. So God knew what he was doing. He commanded the armies of Israel under Saul to go and annihilate these enemies. But Saul decided, you know what, I'm going to sort of do what God said do, but I'm going to sort of do it my way also. And, you know, that compromising, Brother James talked to us this morning about halting between two opinions, kind of sitting on the fence, like I got one foot in the church and one foot in the world. I got one foot in the Bible and one foot in the newspaper. And, you know, I just, I, I'm trying to have the best of both worlds. Well, Saul here was doing just enough so that in his own mind he could think, you know, I'm following God. But at the same time, he was really doing what he wanted to do. And that's, it, that may be a familiar feeling to you. And, and the, I hope the Holy Spirit convicts you as he does me that that is the wrong attitude to have. I need to be sold out for God. I need to be willing to say, Lord, whatever you say do is what I want to do. And if it conflicts with what I want to do, I need to give up my desires and follow your desires because they are always the best. Well, Saul here conquers the, the enemies, the Amalekites, but it says in verse 8, he saved Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he's, verse 9, he spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Well, Samuel ends up going back to Saul with another message. He said, you didn't really listen to what God said. And Saul protests and says, no, I did. I did basically what, what you said to do. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. And Saul said, yes, I did. And then Samuel said, what's that noise I hear? And it was all the animals that Saul hadn't killed. And so then Saul realizes he's been caught red-handed. And he says, uh, well, you know what? It was the people. They made me do it. They, you know, they prevailed upon me, and so I went along with what they said. And besides, you know what we were going to do with all those animals? We were going to offer them to God anyway for a sacrifice. So it's okay, Samuel. Don't worry about it. And Samuel says, verse 22, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Wow, that may seem harsh. That may seem, you know, one strike and you're out. But if you see Saul's spirit in reacting to the message of God, this is not just Samuel offering a man's opinion. This is Samuel confronting him with the word of God. And if you see Saul's attitude in response to that, He's belligerent, he's resistant, he's self-justifying, he's not a penitent spirit at all, and he only acknowledges what he does when he's caught literally red-handed with the sheep making noise behind him while he's telling him there are no sheep left. And so, so, so clearly Saul is of the wrong spirit, and clearly God, who always does the right thing, did do the right thing in, in uh, punishing Saul by removing him, beginning to remove him from the office of king. But there's one little line I skipped over in this story that I want to go back and look at, and that's the theme for tonight. 1 Samuel 15, 17. Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? Have you ever heard about this saying of getting too big for your britches? 
Sonny Piles preached about uh, a sermon one time where he used the word britches, and a lady who'd gone to, had an expert degree in grammar corrected him afterwards and said, Brother Sonny Piles, you ought not to say britches, you ought to say trousers. And he said, excuse me, sister, I don't remember when I said britches. Could you tell me what I said right before that? And she said, I can't remember. And he said, well, could you tell me what I said right after that? And she said, I don't remember that either. He said, sister, it's a good thing I said britches or you wouldn't remember anything I'd preach. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't want to get too big for our britches. If you don't remember anything else, remember that, okay? We don't want to get too big for our britches. We want to be small in our own sight. Because Samuel said to Saul, do you remember that was really true? When Samuel first sought out Saul to anoint him as the first king of Israel, Samuel, I mean Saul, was hiding. Even though he was a tall guy and a good-looking guy and a noteworthy guy, a strong guy, the kind of guy you might pick as a king, he didn't think he was any of that. He didn't think he was worth, you know, why would anybody pick me? He was hiding. When he was small in his own, in own eyes, God lifted him up and anointed him king over Israel. Friends, We need to be small in our own eyes. And I'm not saying that we should despise the work of God in our lives. Some people are so down on themselves, they paralyze themselves into incapacity. God equips his people. I think the right balance, the perfect balance is this. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. And Paul said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. If you've got both of those pieces of the puzzle, then you've got the humility, but you've also got the boldness to step out knowing the strength isn't coming from you. The strength is coming from God. Zechariah said in chapter 4, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And then a few verses later, he said, who hath despised the day of small things? So we're going to go over here to Proverbs 30, and this is our text. I'm sorry it took me so long to get here, but it all connects together. We're going to talk about some small things. And this will go pretty quickly. It's four tiny little animals that are set forth by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for examples to us of how to be. He says in, the, in Proverbs 30, is a fun chapter to read, by the way, the words of Agur, the son of Jakey, and there's the three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things that say, say not, it is enough. I kept looking in there, but none of my kids' names are listed. I was surprised. Um, then there's the section of three things that are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. Then verse 21, three things for which the earth is disquieted and for four which it cannot bear. And then in verse 29, three things which go well, yea, four are comely and going. And these are all, they're beautiful poetic studies. But the one I want to focus on is in verse 24. It said, there be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. Little bitty things that have a whole lot of sense. And that's what we want to be, isn't it? We want to be small in our own eyes, but we don't want to be small and stupid. We want to be small and wise. We want to know, if you're small, you know, the, um, I read an account about a, don't ask me where, I can't even remember where I read this, but a bouncer at a bar, you know, this huge, big, burly, 300-pound guy, all muscle, who throws people out of the bars all the time, and he said the guys he's the most worried about, the, the two kind of people he's most worried about when he has to throw somebody out of the bar is a woman. He said, they can fight like crazy. And he said, he said, these little bitty men that walk on beams of steel 100 feet up in the air. He said, they're all abs and balance and poised, and they could be one-third my size, but they can put me down on the floor. Because they're small, and they've got sense, okay? That's what we're looking for tonight, is we want to be small and wise. So here are four lessons. Four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding 
wise. The first is the ants, which are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. So an ant is a tiny thing. As a child, you've probably squished ants before. As an adult, you've probably sprayed ants before. You know you can overcome an ant infestation. It annoys you. It bothers you. But you don't, you're not intimidated by their strength. They are weak creatures. But you know, in their weakness, being aware, as much as an animal can be, of their own weakness, they compensate for that weakness by starting early. They get up a little earlier in the day. They work a little longer into the evening. They work all summer long. If you remember the Aesop's uh, fable, while the grasshopper plays, the ant is out there hard at work, storing up food, little seeds, little grains, little, little morsels of food that they find down inside the ant nest. So when the winter comes, and again, according to Aesop's fable, the grasshopper's out there having nothing to eat, the ant is down there with a food supply for all winter. They didn't achieve that because they were so strong. They achieved that because they were a creature of preparation. And this is something that sometimes I think in the house of God we neglect. We think, well, we're small. Well, we're weak. Okay, those are good things to acknowledge. We can't do it without God. Okay, that's right. And then we forget to say, well, we can do it with God. And we just think, you know what? If God wants it done, he'll probably get it done. Well, God does want it done, and he wants you to do it. God wants you to be active in fulfilling what he's called his people and the house of God and your family and your household and you as an individual. He expects you to be busy about doing your master's business, your father's business, just like Jesus was as a little 12-year-old boy. And he expects you to rely on him to get it done. But he expects you to be active in the doing of it. You don't sit back and say, well, let's see what God's going to do. You march out to battle and he goes with you. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. He gets all the glory, but you're up there on the battle lines too. All right? So that's the ants. There are people of preparation. How does that apply in the house of God? Well, it could be very simple as far as, you know, things like maintaining our property and providing food as you ladies and folks have done for the, uh, for the meal after the service tonight. Just the, the simple physical preparations. But, you know, even more important than that, and we should care. We should be good custodians, good stewards of the property and the things that God has given us. But even more important than these physical preparations is spiritual preparation. It's important for us to anticipate and look forward to the day of coming together, to the day of worship. Somebody said it this way one time long ago, and I love this, way, this expression, this way of looking at worship. He said we should spend the whole week looking forward to going to church on Sunday and worshiping, and then we should spend the next week savoring over the blessings of what we experience in the Lord's house on that day. To just reflect and mull over, to meditate, as Brother James has said several times, to meditate on what we've experienced and then to look forward with, with needy anticipation to the next time we're in the house of God. There was a deacon one time back in my hometown. In fact, he was my great uncle, uh, Elder em, I mean, Brother Emmett Rushing. He was a deacon there, and, and he was a deep student of the Bible. And there was one time that a preacher got there and preached a pretty deep sermon, but it was a good, solid, scriptural sermon, but it had to require some thinking and understanding of scriptures. And after it was over, my uncle Emmett Rushing got up and said something that sounded kind of odd. He said, I got more out of that sermon than almost everyone else here. And everybody kind of looked at him funny. And he said, no, I know that I got more out of that sermon than almost all of you did. You know how I know that? He said, because when I ask you on Sunday what you've been reading in the Bible, you hem and haw. And when I ask you about what the Lord showed you out of that sermon last week, you weren't quite sure. But he said, I've been reading the Word of God this week, and what the preacher just preached answered every question I had. Wow. He said, I was in the Word of God. I was prepared for this. I didn't have all the answers, but I did what I could do to prepare, and God gave me a blessing greater than he may have given most of you. Well, friends, I want to be the one that's prepared. I want to be the one that is ready like a sponge to soak up the Word of God 
And he does have a marvelous way of working on both ends. Have you seen how many times God works on both ends of the channel? He's got Cornelius over here teaching him a lesson. He's got Peter over here teaching him a lesson at the exact same time. Brings them together, lightning happens, and the, and the Gentile world blows open to the gospel. It's incredible how God works on both ends of Jonah. You know, he's out here, sends him out this way, and then suddenly all the sailors in the ship are converted, then sends him back to, to uh, the, the city of the, uh, what was the city? Nineveh, thank you. And, uh, and then all the city of Nineveh is converted. And meanwhile, Jonah still hadn't learned his yet lesson yet. He's going back and forth like a pinball, but God's converting people all the way. He's working on both ends of the line. God does amazing things, but he expects us to do what he's called us to do, Amen. which is to come to church prepared. Come to church prayerful. Pray for your pastor. Some church said, uh, you know, we need to get a better pastor. And thankfully, the advisor said, to them, that's a great idea. You do need a better pastor. Start praying for him today, and he'll be better next week. So um, you, you, need to, you need to prayerfully support and hold up the hands of your pastors like uh, Aaron and Hur did for Moses during the battles with enemies of the Israelites. So be a people of preparation. Secondly, the conies are but a feeble folk, yet make they their houses in the rocks. The coney is like a little rock badger, almost like a little, a little rat. A little, uh, it's not a very exciting animal, but um, it scurries up and it's found in the Middle East there. They scurry up the, you know, the cliffs and the rock walls and they know enough to know they're vulnerable to almost any kind of predator. I mean, a bird could swoop in and grab them and go home and have a nice dinner. A snake could pop out from behind a rock and poison them, sorry, and, and, uh, and have, a good, have a good dinner. So the conies go up and they find these secure places to hide in the rocks. They are a feeble folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. And I want to go over to the uh, prophet Isaiah for just a couple of references on this because you know exactly where this is going. We sing about it all the time, the rock that is higher than I. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, Christ the solid rock I stand. Isaiah thirty-three sixteen says, He shall dwell on high, his place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him, his waters shall be sure. You go over to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 11. And you see a great uh, demonstration of this as well. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise in the islands. So God is describing his people over and over figuratively as a people who need a defense stronger than themselves. They go to the rock that is higher than they are. They, they find in that rock, which is Jesus Christ, the fortress against the assault of the wicked one. But you know, just like Jesus said, I didn't come to, to heal those who are well. I came, the, the, physician, the physicians not come for those that are well, but for those that are sick. In the same way, those who think they can do it on their own, those who think they can fight their own battles, they're out getting slaughtered on the battlefield. They don't realize how much they need a defense stronger than they are. But for the child of God who knows, hey, I'm weak, I'm feeble, I want to go lock myself up inside of Jesus, and then I can still fight the battles, but I'm going to do it with his armor, with his protection, with his rock around me. All right, the third one is the locusts have no king, yet go they forth all of them by bands. And this locust is the one that first ever got me interested in this passage years ago when we still lived up here in Maryland and I pastored at Wilmington. This was a favorite little passage out of Proverbs of mine. And this locust was the one that had me so intrigued because, friends, this locust describes the way that Jesus Christ organized his church. And I'm just going to talk real frank with you. I know probably, I don't know all of your religious backgrounds, but in a congregation this size, there's probably at least half a dozen 
different kinds, different flavors of religious backgrounds. Maybe some of you come from, hey, I never went to church before in my life until a few months or a few years ago. Maybe some of you come from some other denomination or some other uh, religious background entirely or cultural background where, where there was lip service given to Christianity, but it was just words and it didn't really mean anything. Well, I want to tell you something about the way the Lord Jesus Christ organized his church. He organized it in a way that it would endure through time. He said in Matthew uh, 16 and 18 that upon this rock, that same rock that we hide in, the rock is Jesus Christ, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you've been taught wrongly that that rock is Peter, I want to explain that to you. Peter's name means little rock, like a chip off the old block. But Jesus' name is the big rock. Okay, And so he says, I'm building my church. Thou art Peter. You're a little rock. But on this rock, on this big rock, this boulder, this mountain, this is where I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A gate can be a defensive structure, meaning that the church of God is meant to be on the attack against the devil and his, his kingdom. A gate can also be a metaphorical description of the armies. And so therefore, it could be the gates of hell is the devil's armies attacking God's church. Either way, you can see, clearly see both ways that God has designed his church to prevail against what seems like overwhelming odds sometimes. One of the ways that I'm convinced Jesus has designed his church to withstand, you think about everything the church has had to endure in the last 2,000 years. James is a, a deep student of history. He's come up with a lot more examples of this than I can. But think about everything the church has endured in the last 2,000 years. It's endured people who tried to come up within the church and entirely turn the doctrine on its head upside down. It's endured attacks from outside the church, from Roman emperors who said, here's the solution to Christianity. We'll kill them all and they'll go away. The problem is it didn't work. The more they killed, the more new ones there were. They said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So that didn't work. And so Satan has tried all these different angles of attacks down through the years, down through the Middle Ages, down through the Reformation, down through the, Engl the Renaissance, down through the English Reformation, down through the colonization of the New World, all the way down to where we are today, where one of the greatest attacks, at least in our culture, is none of those overtly bloody attacks of, of history. It's the attack of complacency. It's the attack of distraction. It's the attack of, of helping us to be fat and happy and content in the world so the church doesn't really matter so much anymore. But whatever the form of the attack is, Jesus knew about it in advance. Will you agree with me on that? Amen. The devil has never had an attack plan yet that Jesus didn't already know about before it happened. And so Jesus designed, just like he designed his word with the answers to all the things the skeptics would ever say, he designed his church to be able to withstand all these attacks. In human wisdom, if you were going to go out and build an organization, you said, I want this organization to endure for 100 years or 500 years, I'm going to build a board of directors, I'm going to have a very strong CEO position, I'm going to have maybe five vice presidents, executive vice presidents set up under that. And we're going to have offices in all the biggest cities of the world. And we're going to make sure that this thing functions like a well-oiled machine. We'll be on the New York Stock Exchange. We're going to get the best advisors, the best lawyers, the best accountants money can buy. And we're going to make this thing last for 500 years. I think I just described all of the Ivy League colleges that were founded in this country less than 200 years ago as bastions of Christian faith. And now they're all bastions of anti-Christian influence and anti-gospel intellectualism. Guess what? That system doesn't work. Jesus didn't use that system. That's not how Jesus built his church. Man's wisdom says centralize it all, make it all highly efficient, make it all directly accountable to a single human source of authority. 
And friends, without being hopefully overly critical of any religious institutions out there today, I want to say that even some good and well-meaning sincere people are in religious institutions today that have a very similar structure. And therefore, I'm scared for them on their behalf because that is a very vulnerable structure. If there's a church that has one man at the top, even if he calls himself the representative of Jesus Christ, if that one man starts telling you things that are wrong, suddenly the whole church is corrupted. If your church is dependent on a committee of men who are super, super wise and smart and they get together once every year and they make sure all the rules are consistent and they, and they, and they publish all the, the uh, teachings for the church to follow the next year, that works great until one year they decide they were wrong the year before and they change it. And, and the thing is with centralization, it is so easy. What you've done is you've painted a, a single target for the devil to strike. You've, all the devil has to do is come poison that one water source and everybody who drinks from that water source is now poisoned. But if you design a church the way Jesus designed a church, there is no earthly head. There isn't any single point of accountability. I love Brother Stephen and the church at Mount Carmel. I love the church of Columbia. If you asked me to come up here and counsel with you on a struggle that this church is having, I would come up here and do that in a heartbeat. And you would do the same for me down in Chattanooga. But if this church ever came down to Chattanooga and said, Brother Andrew, the primitive Baptists have met and we've decided this is what you should do, I would love you, I would wash your feet, and then I would hustle you out the door as quick as I could. I would not listen to one, I, I, I've got, I don't, I'm not going to listen to that for one minute, and you shouldn't listen to me if I do that either. We were talking the other day, there, there, are no, there are no lords among the primitive Baptists except for a small handful of people who think they're the lords, and you know what? All we have to do is not listen to them. It works out fine if you just don't listen to them. So Jesus designed his church to be resilient against those kinds of, against those kinds of attacks from Satan. He can't attack a single source. He might attack this church or Mount Carmel Church or our home church back in Chattanooga, but there'll be a hundred, a thousand other congregations around the nation, around the world, underground churches in China. There'll be churches all over the place continuing on answering directly to their head, Jesus Christ, because the locusts have no king, no visible leader on earth, Yet somehow when they go out, it's like a mighty army. Friends, that's the church I want to be a part of. The church that's not built on human wisdom, on human planning, on human business models, but a church that's built on the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this little church at Columbia is just such a church. And it inspires me to see your zeal to even meet on a, on a, a non-traditional meeting schedule, to come out on Sunday afternoons and meet whenever the preachers are available, and to continue praying for the Lord to revive this work. That was one of the first hymns we sang this afternoon. I love that hymn, and I pray God will revive this work. Friends, don't be deceived or embarrassed by the world, even the well-meaning religious world, into saying, yeah, I don't know. It's just not as glamorous to be a primitive Baptist. If you find a church where it's glamorous to be, that's the time to leave. The church you want to be in is one where the people know they're small and they know God is big. Amen. And last of all, the spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. Royce Beale down in Atlanta, Georgia. Ain't God good. I just felt like I had to say that right then. Ain't God good. <clears throat> he, uh, the spider taketh hold with her hands. We've got, uh, this one just always makes me think of our front porch back at Chattanooga Church. Because I don't care how many times we could call a cleaning day and scrub that building from top to bottom. And next Sunday I show up and I know exactly the corner where there's going to be a spider web. Every single Sunday that spider is going to build her web right back there. Every other Sunday, because I'm just too lazy, I'm going to knock that spider web down. And the next Sunday it's going to be back up there again. There's just something about that, that persistence of such a frail creature. All that hard work that went into it and then it's knocked down and destroyed in a moment. And she comes back out the next morning and builds the web again. That simple persistence is the attitude that a follower of Jesus needs to have. 
That's the attitude we need to have. Oh, I got defeated today. I, I backslid today. I fell down today. Great. That means tomorrow I can do a better job. I know I can't do it by myself, but I can do all things through Christ with strengthened me. I know I've let the Lord down, but I'm going to repent, and he's going to forgive me and strengthen me and bless me to go ahead and go forward one step in front of another. And so this tiny, frail creature who exhibits nothing but the attribute of persistence is found, guess what, in the White House, in the Kremlin, in all the halls of power across the world, there are spider webs. And friends, there were, there were Christians in Caesar's household. They thought they could squelch the gospel by killing the Christians, by locking up Paul in the prison. And when Paul was locked up in the prison, he preached to the people from Caesar's household who came to check on him. And the next thing you know, there's Christians in Caesar's household. You just can't keep those people down because God and his wisdom are greater. Even God's foolishness is so far greater than the wisdom of men. God bless you. glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.